This is Chip Walker, co-author of Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Chip Walker to the Marketing Book Podcast, talk about the book he has co-authored with Scott Goodson, Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company, published by Kogan Page. Chip Walker, based in New York, is the head of strategy and a partner at Strawberry Frog. Recognized for his expertise in brand creation and reinvention, he has led the charge in transforming brands such as Goldman Sachs, Lexus, Bank of America, Jim Beam, and Heineken. He is a frequent speaker at some of the branding world's major events, and his writings and opinions have appeared widely in places like Adweek, the Chicago Tribune, and CNBC. And interesting fact, he was born in the same state as the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, Alabama. Chip, congratulations on Activate Brand Purpose, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, you know, roll tide, although you didn't go to Alabama, but you know, have to get that out there. So now your publicist, uh, Valerie, said that you were also the inspiration for the uh, hit TV show with Chuck Norris, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Is that is that correct? Uh, n- no, I don't know where she got that from. <laughs> no, that that is not that is not true. I'm a I'm a different Walker. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Valerie did not say that. She's very professional, but. I got to believe your favorite baseball team probably is the Texas Rangers. Would that be correct? Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not a baseball fan. I find oh. it a little, a little, little dull. You okay. know? But if, if I were, it would probably be the Yankees just because of where I live. Yeah. Oh, I'm a Yankees fan too, having lived in New York for so many years. Okay. Well, then let's just let's agree that your favorite hockey team is the New York Rangers since you live in Manhattan and they're there locally. And frankly, I've run out of Texas Ranger jokes. So... What I wanted to do was read a couple of excerpts from the beginning of the book and get into it. Great. So, a couple of sections here. This book is about how to think about purpose today, how to activate and actualize it with a movement inside your organization and outside among different stakeholders. Movement thinking is designed for this new time, the time of Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, to capitalize on our natural human desire to belong to a bigger idea that galvanizes us to do something. In this book, we'll be illustrating several movements that will serve to inspire you to think bigger. And then moving on, A few paragraphs down. One thing we've noticed about movement culture is that it can be contagious. When you spend time with others around an idea you feel passionate about, you invariably start to pay close attention to the things that matter in this new shared reality. In modern life, where our attention spans are briefer than a goldfish's, a movement helps you notice and engage with things and also avoid engaging with things. These aspects suggest to us that movement thinking is a revolutionary management change and marketing idea in revolutionary times. And finally, a few pages later, this book is a call to arms for those leaders and business pioneers whose experiences have led them to the same conclusion as the authors, that movement thinking 
igniting purpose with creativity and innovation will differentiate your brand in a way that gives it a sustainable business advantage. So Chip, you you talk in the book about movement thinking is being taken seriously by more and more business leaders. But we need to step back. What is movement thinking and and why are more businesses taking it seriously? Yeah, well, um, may, maybe even te- take a step back before we get to movement thinking, uh, which is um, all about the notion of purpose. Yes, um, and I should add that you, you even talk about this purpose craze. In other words, years ago, you didn't hear so much about it, and it's almost it reminded me also of the like the term storytelling. Everyone's a storyteller now. Oh yeah, <laughs> you all talk about suddenly it's all about purpose, and I guess you guys were doing it before it was cool. Um, yeah, well, we've we've been focusing on purpose for a while, but but you're right. Right right now, it is just the word du jour um, in business in general, but certainly in marketing. Uh, so everybody's talking about defining purpose, finding your why. Um, and, um, the, the, the issue seems to be though, that, that once people define purpose, often it's hard to figure out what to do with it. You know, purpose is by nature often very lofty. Uh, if it's to be uh, effective, it often, uh, is, you know, inspiring and, and operates at a very, very high level. Um, but as I said, um, often like employees don't know what to do with it. Um, and it just kind of sits there. It's just a poster on the wall or a plaque or a t-shirt. Um, right. And so- I should explain for the listener, this book, you touch on it, but it's not so much about how to find your purpose. You said there's a lot of great articles and books about that. <laughs> this is about yes. what to do with it and how to activate it, because I gather from reading the book that that's one of the biggest problems, is it does just sit there like a plaque over the CEO's desk, <laughs> and yeah. the employees don't get it. Yeah, that that was really the inspiration for writing this book, is that we saw kind of a hole in the market, um, that there were tons of books about finding purpose, but very few, if any, about what to do with purpose. Uh, how do you action it? And we had clients during 2018, 2019, and certainly during 2020 coming to us over and over again saying, we've had consultants in, we've developed a purpose, and but you know, it, we we don't know what to do with it. Or uh, e- even more often, we'd hear that they they've had one consultant in, developed a purpose, didn't know what to do with it. Then had another consultant come in, and so on and so on, um, and and you know, no action. So it was clear to us that this was kind of a burning need in in uh, the marketplace um, and kind of in the the book world as well, which mm-hmm. is uh, why we wrote the book. But getting back to your question about movement thinking, um, so. Um, I think the truism that um, is behind the book and, and also really behind our agency is that people can't really join a purpose, but they can join a movement that's inspired by your purpose. Um, and I think kind of the secret to um, our practice and to this book um, is that um, the theories behind social movements um, have kind of a, a a magic that gets people emotionally engaged and uh, can make uh, something as lofty as a purpose seem uh, actionable and something you want to kind of join in with. Um, and uh, I, I think usually the easiest way is to kind of give an example. Uh, and I'll start maybe with an example outside the business world. And I'm sure we can talk about a bunch that are either our clients or, or in the business world. But if you think about the um, the marriage equality movement. Uh, You know, for years, um, it really didn't have any um, traction. Um, You know, a lot of activists were in favor of it, but um, it just really wasn't even on the agenda. I mean, even a kind of a progressive like Obama was kind of on the fence about marriage equality. Uh, And and the argument had been framed uh, in terms of rights, getting married because um, everybody has a right to get married and you have a right to share the same benefits as your spouse. Uh, Everyone should have a right to do that. And for whatever reason, that just didn't connect with people. Um, so what movement thinking tries to do is to give your cause, your company, your organization, the right enemy. What, what is the, the wrong in the world that needs to be made right? Um, so for, for marriage equality, uh, it, it had been framed as, you know, the, the, the wrong in the world is that, um, you know, we need to be able to marry and have the same rights as other people. And again, as I said, it just didn't connect with, with, with anyone. Um, the organizers of the movement, I think, did some research and then finally figured out that um, what the right enemy to have 
was um, the inability to marry for love. And they asked the question, what if you couldn't marry the person that you love? All of a sudden, when they found the right enemy, it connected with many, many, many more people. Uh, and, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, mm-hmm. Now the majority uh, of folks, regardless of their political persuasion or what have you, um, see um, marriage equality as as a good thing, that everyone should have a, a right to marry the person that, that they love. And the Supreme Court ruled on it. Uh, yes, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So um, that's just an example of how getting uh, doing movement thinking and getting it right, particularly having the correct enemy, can line everything up and get people behind your cause in a way um, that uh, that that's pretty unusual. So, mm-hmm. and the companies, I think you may have touched on it, but the companies that are starting to get it, because I, I gather there were a lot of executives who understand this, but yet maybe 80%, I think it was, uh, understand the importance of it, but maybe only 25% have been able to do anything about it. Take us back. What what other kinds of things are, I guess, CEOs or CMOs or or any folks like that, what is it that's finally getting them to understand the value, the business case of this movement thinking? In other words, what is it that maybe ultimately gets them to call a firm like yours. Right. Uh, well, well as, as I was kind of referencing earlier, I, I think that there's a great understanding uh, currently that purpose is important and that it can do amazing things. Uh, I think increasingly we hear uh, CEOs, CMOs play back to us that uh, purpose can be an organizing principle for, for your company. You know, it can kind of align all your stakeholders. It can get your employees engaged. It can get uh, your customers engaged. Uh, it can help you change the company culture. Uh, but that what's standing in the way of it is activating purpose. Mm-hmm. So, so, and you mentioned that uh, we, we call it the purpose gap, but it's the proportion of uh, CEOs who recognize that purpose is important, which is in the 80s, versus those who uh, who say that they feel like they're actually activating it, which is like half that. So okay. there's a huge gap between uh, the the belief in purpose and and uh, knowledge that it can be transformative, and you know then actually knowing, knowing knowing what to do with it and being being able to activate it. Yes, and to any company that's still not quite sure about it, what for me was one of the most compelling arguments is your customers are, are more interested in that, and I guess particularly uh, younger customers. True? Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like we're kind of living in a, in a renewed period that's almost like the 1960s, um, in that, you know, the 1960s were a period of, of great protest. Uh, and we're seeing the same thing now. In fact, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll get the statistic um, probably not quite right, but Gallup released a poll, I think it was last year, where they, um, they asked people if they had felt the urge to protest in the past year. Uh, and something like uh, I think close to 40% of people said that they they either had felt the urge or had protested. The last time they had asked that question was in like 1968, um, and where you know only like five or six percent of people said the same thing. So you start to realize we're we're in an area where whatever people are feeling about things, they seem it seems like they're feeling it more more strongly. So we we're sort of in this age of activism, and that that translates all the way down to to consuming. Um, I think social media has probably fueled a lot of that. Mm-hmm. You know, partisanship uh, ha- having to do with with everything, not not just politics, but but the brands you buy. Yes, and for the listener, I should apologize. My 1908 house, the they're just finishing up <laughs> the slate roof repairs, and uh, it's been really hard to get them here. So that's why you may hear some banging in the in the background there. Sorry about that, but it's been kind of an ongoing saga for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> the Marketing Book Podcast. But back to this era, in the book, you all talk about how uncertainty and fear play quite a role in this in this rise of purpose. So I could see how that all, it all starts to fit together. And it also gave me a little bit more of a lens through which to see what's what's going on there with the larger uh, culture and, you know, maybe even certain um, categories. And I guess the reason people aren't succeeding is because they don't know how to activate it, which your uh, book... <laughs> talks about that. And we're going to talk about some of the things to do to activate it and the benefits of it. But I did want to step back, because uh, you say that, you know, the this is to help folks activate 
movement thinking, but there are a few building blocks that uh, sort of invite people to get involved in a, in a movement. And I was wondering if we could walk through uh, some of those. I've got them here. You, it's uh, dissatisfaction, desired change, nemesis, which you've talked about, <laughs> uh, taking a stand and, and taking action. Can you uh, and again, there may be some other books you can recommend about how to find your uh, purpose, and I think you even mentioned there's some uh, some good articles. But can you talk about some of those those building blocks uh, for helping companies get started towards finding their their larger purpose? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so so the, these building blocks are, are for a movement in particular, you know, and oftentimes a company already has a purpose, but as I said, it's often really super lofty. Um, and and uh, I'll use a couple of examples as we go through the building blocks, but um, what, what the sort of building blocks of movement thinking do is, is take your purpose and put it in terms that are a little bit more accessible and actionable. So all movements start with a dissatisfaction. There's a grouse, a complaint that both the starter of the movement and the adherents of the movement uh, share in common. So it's something in the world that uh, it's a wrong, it needs to be made right. So that's a dissatisfaction. Coming out of that is a desired change you want to see in the world. Now, excuse me, let's go back. The dissatisfaction could be that of your company or your customers or just some sort of, uh, some element that grinds everyone's gears. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, so let, let's take an example. Uh, one of the first movements we ever did at Strawberry Frog was for the smart car. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know it. It's that tiny little uh, roller skate of a car that um, can fit into tiny parking spaces. Yes, and my kids thought they were so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're still around. Yeah. Um, so for the smart car. So uh, they really kind of wanted to launch with a movement, not just sort of hawking, uh, you know, a smaller car or a cheaper car. That and Was kind that of owned thing. by Mercedes? Uh, yeah, and, and uh, Swatch, kind of a oh, joint, right. joint, yeah. joint venture. Mm-hmm. Right. So for smart, the dissatisfaction that we identified, uh, it was not that, you know, cars cost too much or, or they're too, too uh, uh, anything. It it was more, much more a, a dissatisfaction in the world. And it was really about that there's too much overconsumption and waste in the world. There were too many big, unnecessary cars and gigantic SUVs that are clogging up cities and the urban landscape. Mm-hmm. That was a dissatisfaction. Uh, the desired change you want to see in the world coming out of that is, you know, how, how ought the world to be? And in the case of SMART, it was really that the, we wanted to see a change of, of having the urban landscape be restored to uh, a more manageable and kind of pristine state again, uh, you know, absent all of these big, unnecessary, wasteful practices that we had. So coming out, so there's a dissatisfaction, there's a change you want to see in the world and coming out of that is naming your nemesis or your enemy what is your brand against and in this case uh for for smart car it was basically kind of stupidly over consuming that's what we wanted to stamp out in the world right and, and do you have uh do you encounter companies that think the nemesis is supposed to be like a competitor which doesn't seem yes. like a very good idea Yes, yes, uh, we do, and and that's an important uh, thing to point out here is that we're not just talking about your your enemy being your your leading competitor. This is something in the world that both you and potential uh, adherents to your movement could both agree to. Particularly those um, first two things: dissatisfaction it, and desired change. Yeah. So, and when you start with dissatisfaction, you move to desired change, and you have a, a shared enemy in the world. All of a sudden, you're engaging people emotionally on something both you as a company and they really care about. Uh, and so that, that, you know, that's, that's a game changer. So off of those three things, then you all, all, all of a sudden you realize what is the stand you need to take? Plan a flag. En- exactly. If your enemy is stupidly over-consuming and your smart car, well then what is your stand? And your stand was really for smart car, really about smart, conscious consuming. Mm-hmm. So we ended up for as a shorthand calling our enemy dumb and our stand smart. 
but you know, really standing for you know being against overconsuming and for you know more conscious uh, automotive consuming. Um, and and based on all those, movement always has to do with action. What do you want people to do? Um, so you know, uh, in in our case, it was to kind of join our movement, and there were there are often like symbols um, that are associated with a movement. If you think of Live Strong, it was the yellow uh, yellow bracelet for um, the uh, uh, there's sometimes a song associated with a movement. We shall overcome. So. Um, you know, our, our action was really just to, to kind of, you know, to take an action, join the movement, uh, and uh, basically to do so online, and mm-hmm. then hopefully, you know, buy a smart car. Yeah, it also brought to mind like the ALS challenge where people were putting buckets of ice on themselves. Yes, that yes. It became sort of the action uh, as part of all that. Exactly. Okay, okay. So let's talk a little bit about activation failure. Sure. And uh, there's some some forms of activation fail that happen out there, and you all rather bravely say, "Look, if it, it's better not to put a toe in the water if you're going to fail." <laughs> you know, nor- right. normally you say, "Just like like let's say producing content or you know adopting a sales process, just just start doing it a little bit better, you'll get better." But you all are saying, "Actually, you're playing with fire here," and I was wondering if you could talk about. This idea of purpose washing or, or woke washing, and what are some of the things that that companies do wrong? And you even talked about like big brands that have, that you normally think would be doing it right, like uh, Nike, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Nike's an interesting one, uh, which we can get into. But um, but but coming back to you know, so what what are some of the purpose fails that we see out there? I mean, we've already <laughs> they, talked they really about really drive you, know, you nuts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, cause a lot of problems for people, and and, and we'll we'll talk about some examples, uh, at least some some of my favorites. Um, so uh, we already mentioned that people s- uh, stop at just asking why. You know, wh- why why do we exist? They stop there. We talked about that. Uh, we also talked about uh, when when they're just basically office decor, when it's just a poster or a sign or a T-shirt. <laughs> you know, so that th- that's I, I think you know pretty clear. But purpose washing, which you bring up, is, is another biggie. You know, as people jump on the purpose bandwagon they hire a consultant you know they're all excited they develop this this fancy purpose um but uh they sort of uh, um either it's conceived in a very inauthentic way and or it's executed in a very inauthentic way and my uh, favorite example of that is uh gillette oh, yeah. uh and um their whole campaign that was about toxic masculinity uh, I don't know if you remember, they did a series of TV commercials that were all about, you know, kind of being a, a woke male and avoiding being having uh, toxic masculinity and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you, you know, I, I think it did have some fans, but in general, I think it's viewed as being having been a pretty big fail for the, the brand and, and getting a lot of backlash. And I think the reason, it, it's not that toxic masculinity might not actually be a problem. It's just more that Gillette, has never had anything to do with anything like that before, ever. All of a sudden, it's coming out, talking about this and making commercials about it, but not really doing anything else. Uh, and it starts to look like they're just doing this to be controversial, get attention, and kind of uh, jump on the cool bandwagon of having some sort of a higher purpose. Right. They had been all about uh, the best a man can get. And yeah. Very macho. And I can remember when I was a assistant account executive at Jay Walter years ago. I was on the Schick account when that campaign launched and it, it went forever. And then uh, all of a sudden this came like, whoa, wait a minute. It was almost like a movie continuity error. Yeah. Um, another one I think that you all mentioned was the Pepsi uh, yeah. thing about, about protests. Yeah, yeah, that and that was funny because it's filmed in Union Square, which is like a block from my house here. But <laughs> I, I think uh, probably everyone remembers that it was Kendall Jenner. Uh, she was um, filmed, and the story is a little vague. But there's some sort of a protest going on that looks like it might be uh, like a Black Lives Matter or something like that. And um, the Kendall comes up and has some sort of interaction with the cops, and I don't know, everything is right in the world. She offers them um, a coat. A- Pepsi, I think. Yes, yes. And um, I think it was viewed as not simply just purpose washing, but as, as being kind of incredibly tone deaf. Oh, yeah. Uh, of, of feeling like, you know, that a, a 
Pepsi uh, would really do anything to soothe other some of the tensions that we're seeing out in the world. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of both purpose washing and being tone deaf. Um, another biggie, though, um, is when the purpose seems to have little or no connection to what a company actually does. Yes. Um, my favorite example of that is from... Uh, I think it's from 2019, uh, and it's uh, from Planters, the uh, the nut uh, company. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a product called Nutrition, which is, I think, somehow better for you. Um, anyway, they had a campaign out, and it was all about pay equality for women. Um, and you know, which is you know, obviously, it is it is a problem, and and I wouldn't wouldn't argue that it's a, a worthy uh, thing to be concerned about. But what does that have to do with nuts? And uh, the company's answer was that it was uh, taking up this issue because unequal pay is nuts. That was their idea about what the connection was. So, which didn't seem very like a very good connection to me. Pretty tenuous. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But they made commercials about it, and uh, I think again, they just were kind of trying to jump on the purpose bandwagon because they were desperate for something interesting to do mm-hmm. or say. And um, and, and again, I think it uh, unfortunately backfired on them. Yes. So. You know, be be true to yourself, and uh, is that something you've been talking about? I can't remember if it was in your book or Unfiltered Marketing, where there was like a a sporting good retailer that had been selling guns forever, along with you know all kinds of sporting goods, and suddenly they stopped. They took a stand against um, gun violence, which right. is a you know a good uh, cause, but it would it's nothing they had been behind before, and it it, it confused folks. And then I think consumers still didn't quite understand. <laughs> what they were they were they weren't still weren't aware of what they were doing so it was again it wasn't something that it just came out of the blue so yeah one uh one of my favorite quotes from the book that just jumped off the page was companies and brands can radically grow and thrive in the age of movements by designing a marketing movement rather than doing an old advertising campaign and I mean, you came from the ad world, I do too. And I still think there's just a generational uh, muscle memory to want to just do an ad campaign. In fact, we just talked about a couple of them right there with the, you know, the Pepsis and, and that sort of thing. But touch on why successful movements start on the inside before being introduced to the public. Again, that solves some of the problems we just talked about, but also... Um, I, my sense is that it, it really doesn't work well when the CEO says, that's the plaque on my wall, now go do it. Right, right, right. Um, well, yeah, you, you can't really launch a, a movement with a, a mandate. You can't just say, you know, we are now about making the world a better place. Go do it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't doesn't work for people. It uh, tends to get people uh, actually being uh, kind of naysayers and, and and more more resentful. Well, and I think it makes them cynical, and they're like, "Don't worry, it'll pass in a month." You know, it's yeah. a flavor of the a flavor of the month. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a good example of starting on the inside is um, one of our uh, clients and, and actually somebody we interviewed for the book and who wrote a blurb for the book, uh, Hans Westerberg, who is the CEO of Verizon. Uh, he just uh, joined the company from Ericsson a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, Verizon's been kind of a, you know, traditional telecom. Um, you know, we, you know, telecoms used to be... Um, Kind of government uh, subsidiaries, but way way back in the day, and you know they've they've always been sort of uh, slow to change, stodgy. Even though they're a company like Verizon is in uh, the world of technology and and kind of need to be at the cutting edge of technology. So when uh, Hans came in, uh, he worked to kind of rethink their purpose, uh, which uh, they uh, stated as uh, we create the networks that move the world forward. That, that's how we kind of revised the purpose. But rather than go out and do a big ad campaign stating that, he started inside the company because he, he really felt like that they needed everyone to be on board. Um, and uh, I think that, and he, he uh, put it in kind of movement terms. The movement is uh, called Forward Together. Um, but it's really getting people on board with this notion that they, they make the world a better place by making networks that move the world forward. Uh, and the, the, 
the way that he executed the movement internally really was able to get people behind it at all levels, not just at the top, but in middle management, all the way down to people who were out, you know, climbing uh, telephone poles or working on on networks. It, it gave them a sense of mission about why it is they get up and go to work every day. Um, and when you think about things like 5G, you, you start to realize, well, you know what, I, I, their, their networks actually could really improve the world in a, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, an, that's a, just an example of a leader that, who's been very smart in starting on the inside, um, you know, as I said, as, as opposed to going out and just making it an external announcement. Can you explain what this misconception is about higher purpose and movement thinking are exclusively the domain of marketing at companies. <laughs> why is that? Yeah. Why is that problematic? And I guess, uh, why does it happen? Yeah. I, and I, I, I think it's problematic just because uh, it's uh, that, that way of approaching it, I think can often lead to the inauthenticity problem that we were talking about, about having either ideas or communication that just don't seem genuine. Well, they it seem might not more... even be part of their business strategy. Right, right. It can seem gimmicky or, or really leading to ads and communication. I mean, I was not involved in the, the Pepsi situation with Kendall Jenner, but, but I can just imagine that that must be where that came from, that it was from marketing people looking to do an ad um, and looking for something cool, interesting, current and landing on, oh, let's be purposeful and movement-y and and shoot this ad when the leaders of the company um, uh, don't know anything about it or care anything about it or or, or aren't thinking that way. Or the leaders of the company turned to marketing and said, do something about that. And they all said, oh, maybe that's not a good idea, but they had to go do it. Yeah, yeah. I've often thought... um, I'd like to write a book, something to the effect of um, how to be a socially conscious marketer when the leaders of your company don't actually believe in anything. Oh, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and if you do write that, I know a guy that interviews authors of new marketing and sales books. I'm just saying, right. I can connect you with him. So, yeah, that sounds very. Oh, that would that would definitely be a hit because I hear from so many marketers around the world who, yeah, you know, they're smart folks. They're doing everything they possibly can, but yet they're being told to do something that's just at at, uh, at, at cross purpose from the company, and uh, it, 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 they're also almost being given direction as if uh, the management still thinks of marketing as the arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department. Yeah, exactly. So if it's just the marketing folks, it's not a good thing. And it brings to mind another book, uh, by a couple of books by Jean Bliss, who's an expert on customer experience. And in her book, Chief Customer Officer 2.0, she, she warns marketers saying, customer experience is not the domain of just the marketing department. And if you as a marketer, if they point at you at the meeting and say, you, marketing person, go improve our customer experience <laughs> – she said, "You better be careful, because that's right. that's something that's kind of beyond your 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 area, unless you have total back backing by by management." Well, yeah, that, that's certainly true of customer experience. And if we think of something as fundamental as purpose, I mean, purpose has to do with your business strategy, and if it's not emanating all the way up through from from the CEO. Um, if it's just something coming out of marketing, then I think it runs the risk of just kind of being window dressing, mm-hmm. uh, thought of as kind of a slogan, uh, and is probably not going to get much buy-in throughout the company. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Chip, in my career, at least from the agency standpoint, I have – uh, seen a lot of mergers and acquisitions happen, either at the company I've been working for, been acquired or bought another company, but more often at clients where one company buys another or, or whatever and all that sort of thing. And as I, as I was reading your whole chapter about that, I was thinking back, you know, it never seems to end well. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it, and then you had some uh, statistics. I think it was a Harvard Business Review article uh, talked about the failure rate for mergers and acquisitions is uh, somewhere between 70 and 90%. So I was kind of weirdly comforted <laughs> by that. But right. I wanted to quote about uh, this one quote from um, page 170 where you write, a merger is not simply an initiative with a budget and a completion date. 
It requires a mindset that puts humans at the center. A merger's momentum and focus aren't derived merely from a unified business plan, but rather on a clearly defined purpose that employees can be inspired by emotionally to believe and act on. And then another section, people don't have relationships with new organization charts, but they do with a common purpose. Challenges are inevitable, but a cultural movement that activates purpose inside the company will ensure you have a deep cultural rudder to guide everyone from the top of the organization to the bottom. It will also provide much-needed inspiration and growth, as well as employee engagement programs with consumer-grade communications. And I, I think there was like one client that I had when I was in New York that was an insurance uh, financial services conglomerate and they were really good at acquiring companies and getting the culture going in the right direction. But that was like the only one I ever saw. But because they were able to do that, when they went to Wall Street to get funding for additional acquisitions, it was never a problem because they had such a track record at, at doing this. And I think they had some sort of expression like the northbound train or something where they would get everybody working in, in, in the same direction. Can you talk about some of the ways that this has helped? Uh, I mean, there was one enormous bank in, uh, was it client of yours in Abu Dhabi? Where you right. brought these two big banks together. And I don't know, another industry that uh, merges and, and acquires other companies as much as banks do. Yeah, you, you know, I think probably the um, the more accessible example uh, in banking, uh, and it's one that's going on right now, um, is is was not necessarily the Abu Dhabi one, but uh, one that's happened um, in the southeast of the United States here. So uh, we had a client for several years called SunTrust, SunTrust mm-hmm. Bank. I don't know if you know it. Yes, uh, they. I'm in the re- south here. Come on. Yeah, my wife has an account at BB and T, which. I guess that's part okay. of SunTrust, right? Uh, BB&T and SunTrust just merged uh, okay. about uh, a year ago. So we've been uh, handling, helping them um, uh, kind of bring this merger forward and, and put it out in the world. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is, uh, l- like the Abu, Abu Dhabi example, um, th- these were two companies who thought a lot about uh, purpose as they came together, just for the reasons that, that you just outlined, is that um, you know people can't really join a merger, they can't get engaged with a merger, but they can engage with a shared purpose, employees from, from both sides. And uh, the purpose that they developed uh, is called, um, it's interesting for a bank, um, it's called Inspiring and Building Better Lives and Communities which uh, you might say sounds kind of general, but when you think about it coming from a bank, it's a little bit revolutionary in that I think what they're saying is, and in fact, the CEO of the company has kind of said, you know, our primary job here isn't really just about money. Um, It's about trying to make people's lives and the communities that we operate in better, Uh, which, you know, it's a very, very different way to think about what a bank is really here for. Um, it's so far been a hugely successful merger in that the companies have come together beautifully. Um, and as I said, all the employees kind of can get up every day with a shared vision of why it is they, they, you know, they go to work, what, what, it, what it is that they do to make a difference every day. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example of, the, of how purpose can really um, work with a merger. Yeah, and it also helps them probably with making decisions every day. You know, even the the teller at the bank can start to have some sort of guidance for for making uh, decisions. So I want to read. I want to talk about collaboration. And I, Chip Walker, I do appreciate your collaboration on this interview. But this is a chapter on collaboration, and you write as buzzwords go: collaboration is an ubiquitous one. You'll find it everywhere. Numerous articles are dedicated to the topic. The about section on corporate websites wax eloquent about. Collaborative cultures, job candidates assert how collaborative they are in their CVs, and countless TED Talks hammer home the dogma that collaboration is essential to business. People in business are simply fascinated by collaboration. So, Chip, talk about why collaboration is so challenging and how movement thinking can help with that. Right, right. Well, well, you know, I, I think if you've ever worked, particularly in a large corporation, uh, you, you realize that dis- despite all the uh, yay saying about, you know, yes, we're collaborative, you know, we work together, that that often that's just a smokescreen. You know, there are disagreements, <laughs> there's politics. Um, in fact, so, the more they talk about it, <laughs> it's probably worse. 
Yeah, yeah. But to the point you just raised a minute ago, ta- talking about the, that, that bank example of when you give people a shared reason that they're getting up to go to work every day, that they genuinely agree with, um, all of a sudden it changes, um, it, it, it gives people a sense of solidarity, that they have shared values and they're on the same team. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you another uh banking example uh and uh not that it's the most exciting category but it's one of the most challenging especially for stuff like this that we're talking about you know because money can be dry um and um so prior to um working with Truist, uh, we worked with its predecessor called SunTrust and SunTrust had this purpose called um uh lighting the way to financial well-being uh, which sounds great, but again, like if I'm a teller uh, or if I'm in Department A and somebody else is in Department B, what what does that say to us? Um, and and uh, it was a little bit hard to to action. Uh, we helped them create this movement called On Up, uh, which stands for Onwards and Upwards. But it had an enemy of uh, of basically financial. Uh, stress and anxiety that a lot of people were feeling, you know, coming out of the last recession, Mm -hmm. that that was the enemy in the world that we kind of wanted to get rid of, and a stand, uh, a flag in the ground around making people financially confident again. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I bring this up is that what that idea did, when you put the purpose in those terms, that I get up every day to help people get out of stress and become more financially confident, all of a sudden... Wherever you were in the bank, uh, with a colleague, either you liked them or you didn't like them, you had a common mission about something that you knew was meaningful and important mm-hmm. um, and, and really kind of, kind of urgent. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier, I think, for people to put their differences aside and, said, and say, you know, look, we need to work together you know, because this is important to do. And was it's, financial literacy part of that? Uh, it was a huge, huge yes, part of it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I thought that was – I, that was one of my favorite examples in the book because there are people in an organization like that that are very knowledgeable and there are, there's a lot of financial illiteracy sadly out there. And if you're just helping folks, just imagine how that helps with modern marketing and, and even uh, selling. Let's say you're getting a first time mortgage and there's only one bank that's trying to help explain things to you. So you better understand it. You're you're going to um, feel a, a sense of reciprocity with them. It just works on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. And SunTrust was so successful with this. Um, they had a program uh, inside their company called Momentum on Up, which was all about teaching their own employees about um, you know some of the basics of in financial literacy. It was so successful that some of their cli- the bank's clients started. Um, Actually, paying the bank uh, to to uh, go and do that program inside their company. So companies like Delta and um, Home Depot had uh, SunTrust come in to give the same financial literacy uh, education to to their employees. Um, oh, that's great. And yeah. It ties in with this notion of teaching is the new pitching, which is in a number of content marketing books that have been uh, featured on the show. I, I really liked it. It's helpful, and it clearly was serving a need. On the subject of collaboration, though, I've got to ask you about this one uh, statistic that you talk about related to marketers. It was a Deloitte study uh, that found that only 17% of chief marketing officers collaborate inside their company. <laughs> and that I'm looking at the chart right now, and that CEOs were the only ones that were worse. They collaborate only 12%. You just talk about how collaboration is not really baked into the way members of the, the C-suite think. And then you went on to quote Adam Morgan, and he writes that the partnership and collaboration is simply not baked into the way marketing currently thinks about how to scale its impact. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you mentioned it earlier about marketing often being off in this arts and crafts silo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, well, either arts and crafts or, uh, you know, an advertising silo or, you know, thought to be kind of about um, things that are maybe a bit more uh, surfacey and often kind of touchy-feely so that folks in the certain areas of the C-suite, like the CFO or the CIO, um, maybe don't take it seriously. 
Um, and depending on the responsibilities of the CMO, they often they don't say, for example, have sales responsibilities. So you got um, you know uh, other folks in the C-suite who who are in charge of sales, and they view marketing as uh, just expensive and and maybe not that um, not not that uh, important or useful. Mm-hmm. And and I think. S- uh, as a result, you know, marketers aren't always at the at the table in the, in the same way that some of the other folks in the C-suite Definitely are. Not. I mean, just look at the number of people on publicly traded boards of directors who have a marketing background. It's single digits. Right. So I guess, the, and the point that I wanted to make is that I, I think there may be actually be among uh, CMOs and marketers in particular a desire to be more collaborative, but um, th- th- that's not always uh, th- that feeling isn't always returned by other members of the C suite. So, yeah. so, so that's one issue that gets in the way. But uh, you know, in general, you know, these these are often strong personalities in the C suite. You know, and then uh, often I'm sure you've you've uh, encountered this, uh, particularly at the very top. There's a sense of kind of my way or the highway, or that I'm going to mandate. Uh, X, Y, or Z. And as we all know, that that unfortunately just doesn't work very well. Right, right. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I was something in the news the other day. They were talking about maybe a successful CEO who then goes into politics is sometimes has a problem with people pushing back and questioning them and, and having to, to have a little more um, uh, collaboration than they're, than they're used to. So, right. Last thing I wanted to ask you about from in the book is the last chapter, which frankly got me the most excited. You didn't know you wrote an exciting book, did you? But it's it got me fired up. And there's a quote in there from Sandy Thompson, head of marketing consultancy, Fixed, F-I-X-T, one of my favorite quotes. And she wrote, if you want to understand how the lion hunts, go to the jungle, not the zoo. And this is one of my favorite topics uh, about how companies that have the deepest understanding of their customers do better. And you don't have to completely understand them, but you have to understand them a little bit better than your your competition. And I wanted to quote one other thing here. You write, uh, too few companies and brand leaders make the effort to get out from behind their desks and observe their customers, prospects, and employees directly. And then, and there is a question following this, but I want to quote this other part that was just solid gold. The Japanese have a phrase for direct observation as a management tool called Genshi Genbutsu, with apologies to all the listeners in Japan, which roughly translated means go and see. It's based on the idea that indirect information such as research reports is not the best way to get insight. Rather, actually going and seeing the situation firsthand is more likely to get you beyond the obvious to a real aha. To practice go and see means that leaders don't spend all their time in offices and meeting rooms and don't receive all their information via emails or reports, but rather go and see for themselves. One advocate for go and see, Toyota's chief engineer Taichi Ono, has been quoted as saying, don't look with your eyes, look with your feet. People who only look at numbers are the worst of all. And finally, galvanizing leaders don't just sit behind a desk. They get out and understand people in the real world. Before embarking on finding or activating your purpose, ask yourself how recently you sat down face-to-face with customers, prospects, or employees and ask them about their lives. Doing so will give you an understanding of your role in their world. You can't get any other way. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ethnographic and cultural lenses that you at Strawberry Frog use when you're helping clients with this movement work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, uh, often movement thinking leads you to, um, to to ideas that are a little bit counterintuitive, that that aren't just kind of the the, the usual. Uh, and and uh, what what that means is that often the the ways that we gain information about uh, consumers or the marketplace is often things like you know your traditional focus group or survey. And there's not anything wrong with those. It's just that they often don't get you to the counter usual aha about what's going on kind of in culture and in the world that but you need to take advantage of. a focus group is the zoo and not the jungle. And having sat on the other side of that mirror of focus groups for many years, that's why that quote about, if you want to understand how the lion hunts, go to the jungle, not the zoo. It's just, I loved it. 
Exactly, and Sandy Thompson is is wonderful. I worked with her at Young and Rubicam, and, and uh, she she said that uh, once, and it, it's always stuck with me. Uh, that you know, focus group is more like the zoo. When you go out to the jungle and actually observe what people are doing, you often get a view of uh, how your product or service or your brand fit into the world and into culture, and you start to get an, an aha, like we did with Smart Car, that you know people are are sick of overconsumption. That's the issue with gigantic SUVs. It's not the cost, which is, I think, what a lot of people had thought. Um, and it, it, they're, they're looking for something uh, smaller, not just because it's cheaper, mm-hmm. uh, but because they're sick of overconsumption. And you didn't get that by uh, sitting in a focus group with people. You had to kind of go out into the world, see people, drive with them, go places with them, see them in their homes to really understand that kind of context. Um, you know, you, you just uh, oftentimes you don't get um, what's going on with people unconsciously by uh, sitting with them in a focus group. You do get it when you spend time with them in their natural habitat in the real world. And that's one of the reasons we're big proponents on ethnography, which is kind of in situation um, experience as opposed to sitting behind a glass, you know, looking at people, you know, through a two-way mirror in a focus group. Yes, and I just don't think anything is better at getting you to that first building block of dissatisfaction that we first yes. talked about. That's, exactly. That's where they're going to, to tell you that. So, Chip, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Um, that brand purpose alone isn't enough because people can't join a purpose. They can only join a movement inspired by your purpose. And our book is really about showing you how to do that. Excellent. Absolutely. Very clear. And it also brought to mind one of the, some quote I'm always seeing about um, uh, ideas are cheap <laughs> or, or something like that, where it's, it's, it's all about or, uh, being able to do something with an idea to actually activate it. So I, I've seen that in a lot of books about the startup world <laughs> where, yeah. where people are saying, well, these are great ideas, but did you do anything? You know, or right. did, did you go any further than that? So what is one thing a listener could do today? to put in action one of the many ideas from the book or, or perhaps one we've talked about? Yeah, I think if there was a, just one thing that you could do that, that that's really uh, doable, no matter where you are kind of on your purpose journey, I'd say it is think about naming your enemy, figuring out who your enemy is. And, and as we said earlier, it's not your competitor. We're talking your enemy out in the world. Um, it, it's a wrong that needs to be made right that both you and your audience uh, can agree on is important. So mm. finding that enemy, uh, it's a great question to think about. Yes, absolutely. And it gets back to that dissatisfaction and what bothers people. And you start to tap into that, you're going to get attention. Yeah. So what books have most inspired your work and career? Yeah, I think that gets back to sort of what we were talking about, the Sandy Thompson quote about uh, go to the go to the jungle, not the zoo. Uh, I think early on uh, I, in my career, I read a couple of books that made me realize that the things that people say to us, particularly consumers, uh, that it, um, it sort of belies what they actually really feel. Uh, and sometimes they don't even actually know what they think or feel, although they'll tell you something if you ask them. And often it's uh, and something the they un- think that you want to hear. I remember David yeah, Ogilvy talked yeah. about that in his book. He talked about people don't really tell the truth, and it's not because they're bad people. They just they, they don't really know. Exactly, exactly. But they want to be helpful, so they'll tell you something. And so I think just understanding that the unconscious really rules most of what we do was mm-hmm. usually important. And there were a couple of books that really got me thinking about that. One was called, uh, you, you may know this book, it's called How Customers Think by a guy named Gerald Zaltman from Harvard Business School. Uh, it's called How Customers Think, and it's really about the role that emotion and the unconscious play uh, in everything we do. That mm-hmm. it's really like 90% of, of what goes on in our... If not more, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, another one along the same lines, and this is an oldie, 
Uh, but I, I read this like in my 20s, I think. It's, um, it's a guy named Ernest Dichter, D-I-C-H-T-E-R, a German guy. He was a, a, a psychiatrist from Germany, but he was big on Madison Avenue in the 50s uh, and you know consulted to all the major brands. Um, he was one of the kind of hidden persuaders. Anyway, he wrote this book called The Strategy of Desire, and it's all about the unconscious and how the unconscious uh, can help you sell anything, or understanding the unconscious can help you sell anything from, you know, cars to fabric softener. Uh, so again, an- another interesting book, although a, kind of an oldie. The Strategy of Desire. Wow, that's great. Yeah. I knew either one of these, which is why I ask it and why the listeners like these questions. That's yeah. great. Oh, great. Now i got something to do this weekend. Uh, a couple more books to read. Yeah, check those out. Strategy of Desire. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That looks absolutely phenomenal. And it says, yeah, it says published in 2012, but it was, um, it may be a re- uh, republishing. Oh, it was published before I was, well, I think in the 1950s. It's... Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading now that you're not writing a book? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I have a couple of friends who are about to publish books. And in fact, one of my friends, Dory Clark. Yes. Uh, she's, you know, Dory? She's um, a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. Oh, is she? Is she? I love Dory. And in fact, I, I would not, I think, have written my book without Dory's encouragement. Oh, uh, terrific. So she's a, she's great, as you know. I, I, so anything she, she uh, writes, I would want to read. But she's about to publish a book called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Uh, and I'm, I'm anxious to read it just because she's so insightful um, and, and uh I, I don't know. I'm just uh, I've got that on pre-order. Uh, another is a gentleman named Ron Carucci. Uh, Ron uh, is another friend. I actually I interviewed him for my book, um, uh, and, and he's uh, kind of a organizational change guru. He's done all kinds of inside company change work. Anyway, he's got a book coming out. I think in May called "To Be Honest." Uh, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose. Yes. And um, uh, Ron is just uh, chock full of real world examples of working inside companies. And, um, you know, I just, I always fi- I find something inspiring whenever I speak to him. So that's another good one. Interesting. Yeah. I see it's from the same publisher, Kogan Page. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. It says it comes out at, uh, at the end of May. And uh, the publisher says, What does it take to build a purpose driven company of honesty and justice? Ooh. That's great. Well, I appreciate you telling me about those. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, uh, your, your book website, Strawberry Frog, uh, even the people. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, the Purpose Index, which is another- Oh, the Purpose Power Index, purpose yeah. Purpose Power Index. And I'm going to include a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile so uh, folks can find all those things easily and, and find your book and so forth. And- uh, for you, dear listener, if you could do me one favor, please reach out to Chip and thank him for being a guest on the podcast. There are over a million podcasts, and he's decided to be on this one, and I appreciate it. And also, the authors love it when listeners thank them for being on the show and, and connect with them or, or ask them a question. So please do that. Make Chip's day. And uh, for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company. The authors are Chip Walker and Scott Goodson. Chip, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you. And I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 
Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.